Well, thank you so much, Suki, for just sharing with us what God's been teaching you, what you've been doing there in, uh, in Tibet, and uh, for uh, just allowing for uh, us to be able to uh, know how to better pray for you. So uh, before we turn to our text, we were going to be uh, looking at 2 Timothy 3.16 uh, and 17 this morning. But before we do that, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray for Suki, and let's pray for the message. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your loving kindness to us and how you faithfully give us your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with Suki and her coworkers, her fellow coworkers in the faith as they minister the gospel faithfully to the Tibetan people. We pray that you would continue to raise up more workers, that you would send more workers to go there to share the, the good news of the gospel. And we pray that, Lord, you would just allow for them to have wisdom in the way that they do that. We do pray also for the sermon this morning that, Lord, you would allow for us, even though we are looking at a familiar text, to meditate upon what your word says so that we might not just hear it, but that we might live it out as well. We're grateful to you for uh, all that you've done and all that you will continue to do. And it's your sons that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 3, and I'm going to read the entire chapter for context. So, verse 1, the Word of God reads this, But realize this, that in the last day difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Over the last two weeks, we as a church have gone over our mission and our vision. One of the aspects of our mission is to make Christ known to all the earth by making disciples to the glory of God. An aspect of our vision is to entrust the truth to faithful men so that they too will train others in the truth. And this morning, 
we will look at our, one of our church's values. Last year, when Pastor Henry introduced the mission, vision, and values of the church, he mentioned that our church has four core values. Our church values Christ, Christ's word, Christ's body, and Christ's servants. While it would be easy to preach on any one, of, uh, any one of these things, any one of these values, we will be looking at the value of the Bible this morning. Now, if you're like any typical Christian in the world, when the new year hit, you were probably thinking, okay, this is the year that I will read my Bible. If you're a little more ambitious, you probably thought, okay, this is the year that I will read through the entire Bible. Or perhaps some of you just knowing yourself, just being realistic, just saying, okay, well, this year, I'm just going to try and be disciplined to read my Bible. All of those goals are great goals, and we would not want to discourage you to do that at all. But I think where we all, myself included, are at sometimes when it comes to Bible reading is we look at it more as a chore, more as a duty than a privilege, we kind of miss the point at times. You know, people tell us all the time, read your Bible. It's good for you. It's a privilege to do that. They're absolutely right. Absolutely right. But reading our Bibles isn't necessarily just good for us, just, you know, in the same way like Brussels sprouts are good for us. It feels like that sometimes. Right? It feels like that sometimes. But really, like, when you think about it, reading your Bible is kind of like getting treated to a lobster dinner. It's a little bit of hard work, right? You got to get past the shells and everything, and it's kind of messy. But when you get to the good stuff, it's great, isn't it? Now, if you don't like lobster, think of something else that's hard to eat. But why is it worth it? Why is it so good to read our Bibles? It's not necessarily because you feel great or mind-blown at the end of every single devotional session, right? Because there are times where you read your Bible and you're just like, that was good. What do I do with this? Right? But when we read our Bibles, it might not always be mind-blowing or like, whoa, that was so cool. But it could be just a reminder of what God is doing or who God is. And that comes down to, that, that boils it down to the fact that when we worship or when we read our Bibles, we worship our God, right? We're engaged in an act of worship when we open our Bibles. We get to have personal one-on-one time with the Lord when we read our Bibles. We have the unique privilege of worshiping Him every time we open that Bible. We encounter the holy, grace-giving God who made a way of salvation so that we could be with Him every time we open our Bibles. Now, this is not one of those sermons where I stand here or where I stand here as the preacher and say, hey, get on my level, read their Bibles. Meet me where I'm at. I'm not saying that to you because I'll be honest with you. I, too, am a sinner who is imperfect in the way that I apply the scriptures to my own life. There are many mornings where I look at my schedule and I'm looking at it and I was like, I have so much that I have to do today. I don't think I have time to read my Bible. It's way easier for me just to get to the business of the day than it is for me to read my Bible. And to my shame, more often, well, not more often than that, but to my shame, there are times where I do just get going. So I'm not telling you this as someone who's reached it. I'm not telling you this as someone who does this perfectly. I'm pointing the finger at myself more than I am pointing it at you. 
But the beauty of God's grace and his gracious provision of the Holy Spirit is that we can overcome our personal insufficiencies. We can. It's not because of our own effort, but it's in Christ. And because of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we can strive together as one church body to honor God in the way that we read, hear, and respond to his word. This morning, we're going to observe three attributes about the Bible, three qualities about God's word that challenges us to genuinely value the place of God's word in our lives. The first attribute that we're going to observe about the Bible that challenges us to value the place of God's word in our lives is the person behind Scripture. The person behind Scripture. And before we begin, by way of introduction, I want to review quickly the background of 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul, he writes this letter to his disciple Timothy, who is now serving as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul, he's aiming to write Uh, He's aiming to prepare Timothy for the tough road of ministry ahead. And so he provides Timothy with this letter as a sort of soldier's manual. This is how you get ready for the battle to come. Now, while many people in the church at that time were content with just learning the Bible academically and just using it to their own purposes, Paul, he points to scriptures and says, the, the power of scripture is so much more than just head knowledge. It's so much more than just Absorbing it and using it to your own purposes. The power that is in the word of God is found in God himself. The scriptures are absolutely powerful and they can address our needs. And so Paul writes in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, what does it mean to say that scripture is inspired by God? Well, the word here for inspired can also be translated as God-breathed. So you could translate this as all scripture is breathed out by God, or all scripture is God-breathed. Now, why is that important for us to know? Well, if scripture is going to be an important part of our lives, if it's going to be uh, one of the driving forces in our lives, we have to know the source of scriptures. Who is the one who gives us his word? Now, obviously, our, our answer is, well, God, of course, right? But it's also important for us to, to know that not everyone believes that the Bible comes from God. Right? Often you'll hear criticism or objection saying that, no, no, the Bible's not from God. The Bible's just a human book. Now, I've even seen and, and heard people say something to the effect that they could write their own letter, give it the appearance of age, introduce it to the church, and the church would receive it as scripture. How arrogant a statement that is, right? That's what they look at it as. They look at it as a bunch of myths, a bunch of stories. But that leads us to a question, right? What is the basis of our trust in God's word? What protects us from such gullibility? Well, without getting into a full, extensive, apologetical lecture, which I'm sure you all want to hear, a lot of us, a lot of how we know that the Bible truly has authority is based off of what the Bible itself says about itself, right? The Bible claims that it is the word of God and its testimony concerning itself is consistent throughout. You look at all 66 books that make up this book. And they function together as one cohesive whole to tell us about the glory of God, to tell us about his kingdom, to tell us about his salvation plan. 
All of it works together for that purpose. All 66 books together without contradiction. The scriptures teach from the standpoint of God's own authority. None of what we have in the Bible is of man's invention. It is all given to the human authors of Scripture by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, he affirms the validity of the authority of the Old Testament in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, when he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What's Jesus' point? That the Old Testament is all inspired by God, and and he and Jesus did not come to do away with it. He did not come away come to retranslate it or to give you a new truth and to throw out the knowledge that was there before. He says, I am here to fulfill every single aspect of it. All the Old Testament scriptures, they lead to and they point to Christ. And he, uh, he later says this in Luke 24 to 27. Jesus, he's encountering the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. These two disciples, they're really discouraged because they thought, wait a second, when Messiah comes, he's supposed to lead us into the kingdom. He's supposed to bring us salvation. He's not supposed to die. And they're discouraged. And Jesus, he comes alongside, the resurrected Jesus comes alongside them and he shows them from Moses to the prophets that everything concerning himself, everything concerning Messiah. What's his point? All the scriptures point to me. They're all fulfilled. Your hope is not lost. Your hope is not lost. And Peter, he opens it up to the New Testament too. In 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, he writes, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see, the word of God is not the work of a bunch of religious people who wanted to go dupe a bunch of people into believing in a God. It wasn't written for the Jewish people who were a bunch of disassociated tribes so that they could have one common bond so they can come together as one nation. It wasn't written for those purposes. That's what liberal scholars would have you believe. The word of God is is the result of the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the biblical authors to reveal divine truth. It is the, and you know, if the word of God then is a result of the Holy Spirit moving human authors to write and reveal God's plan to mankind, then what we have in our hands, whether you have a paper Bible or whether you have a digital Bible, what you have in your hands is the authoritative word of God. And the Bible It's not powerless. It receives its authority from God. God who has all authority because he created all things and he holds all things together in himself. Therefore, if the Bible is undeniably God's word, carrying his authority, we should strive to know it and live our lives in response to what we hear from it. Now, some, some have argued that obedience 
to what the word of God says. Obedience to everything that God has revealed in his scripture is legalism. Every time you say, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, and they say, stop what the Bible says. Right? We're, in, we're of grace, not of law, so don't tell me the Bible says. That's idolatry. Really? It's idolatry. Is, that, is there a legitimacy to that? When we obey the scriptures, is that legalism? Is that idolatry? Is there a legitimacy to that claim? So then we have to look at what, what is legalism, right? What is legalism? When it comes to legalism, is obeying the Bible legalism? No. Legalism, as observed in the Bible, occurs whenever people take what God has revealed in his word and add extra layers to that in order to try and achieve another righteousness on their own. A good example of this is what we know from the Pharisees. Right? They had the law of Moses, and then they added more to it. Right? They have an entire book, an entire book, 613 extra rules that you add on top of Moses in order to make sure that you don't even get close to violating Moses. And if you follow all of those things, you're good. Legalism is not what occurs when people try to live their lives according to the scriptures or the principles that are laid out by the scriptures. It can become legalism when our preferences become elevated to the authority level of the Bible, but it's not legalism if, due to preference, we choose not to do something. So, for example, this is a popular one. Is it sinful to drink alcohol? No, it's not. Right? It's not sinful to drink alcohol. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say, do not drink alcohol whatsoever. Right? Some people who like alcohol will say, well, Paul always said to Timothy, you know, for your stomach, make sure you drink some wine. Right? But anyway, um, it's not sinful to drink alcohol, but it is sinful to get drunk. Yes? Yeah? Right? It is sinful to get drunk, but it's not to drink alcohol. However, if you elevate drinking alcohol to sin level, you're guilty of legalism. You're guilty of legalism. That's just one example, right? Legalism strives to elevate man's laws, man's preferences, man's rules to the level of Scripture. Obedience strives to understand God's law, the spirit behind it, in order to love him and to try and honor him in every aspect of life. Obedience is by no means legalism. Obedience recognizes who God is, what he's done, his authority, his place of authority in our lives, and it seeks out of love to honor him. That is the difference between legalism and obedience. And as a church, San Francisco Bible, we recognize that God the Father is the person behind the scriptures. And we, as a result, we desire to live our lives according to what Scripture says because we want to bring glory and honor to God. Now, we do want to be gracious. We do want to be understanding when it comes to our preferences because, well, when it comes to our preferences and the way that we live lives, we all have different preferences, right? We all have different things that we prefer, but... When we have convictions about certain things, we want to make sure that we have biblical 
biblical convictions for our preferences and our convictions. If we don't have biblical foundations for our convictions, it doesn't mean that our convictions are wrong and that you need to get rid of them. No, we, it means that, okay, well, if we have our convictions, we need to strive to know our Bible so that we can know our Bibles well so that if someone were to ask us, why do you believe that? Why do you do the things that you do? We can give them an answer from the scriptures. Now, sometimes the scriptures don't specifically say certain things, right? And you can derive principles from them. But when it comes to our convictions, when it comes to what we believe, what we understand, we should be able to trace that from scripture, right? You can have your beliefs, you can have your convictions, but defend it from scripture. No book, chapter, verse, and how to trace it back. That's what we should strive to do as a church, This kind of mindset is ministry-shaping. It's life-shaping. Because when we think about why we do the things that we do, whether as a church or as an individual, hopefully we can say with all sincerity that the reason why we have certain convictions, the reason why we believe certain things or do certain things a certain way is based off of the Bible and biblical principles rather than by history or by borrowed convictions. Now, borrowed convictions aren't bad, by the way, right? but they shouldn't be borrowed for long. Own it own it. We, sh- we would much rather seek to recognize and honor the person who gave us his word and made himself known through that word rather than to elevate any other source of authority. That leads us to our second attribute we will observe about the Bible that challenges us to value the place of God's word in our lives, which is the prophet of scripture, the prophet of scripture says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The entire Bible is breathed out by God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in its entirety, together as one unified whole, it is described by Paul as profitable or beneficial. But what is it profitable for in the lives of believers? Well, Paul identifies four ways that the scriptures are profitable for the believers, and it's arranged in what we would call a chiastic structure. That's the nerd way of thinking about it. If you want to think about it in, in another way, it's kind of like a sandwich. It's kind of like a sandwich. Chiastic structure is basically a sandwich. The point of emphasis resides in the middle. Right? Whenever you have a sandwich, you don't think, oh, well, I'm having a rye bread sandwich, or I'm having a whole wheat sandwich. Right? You don't think about that. Right? What's important about the sandwich? What's in the middle? It's not to say that teaching and training and righteousness are not important, but the core emphasis is in reproof and for correction. But we're going to take a look at this, okay? So firstly, Scripture is profitable for teaching. Scripture is beneficial because it establishes doctrine. In other words, Scripture is helpful because it develops our foundational thinking about God, about man, about sin, and about salvation, Because scripture is profitable for teaching, because it establishes our foundations of our beliefs, it means that doctrine is not something that's just for theologians and pastors, but it is for every single one of us. We need to know sound doctrine. We need to have a solid spiritual foundation. Because without it, Christians won't even know what they say they believe, right? If you can't give an answer to what 
to what you believe and why, do you really know what you believe? Do you really know what you believe? And if you don't know what you believe, what's to stop you from being vulnerable and susceptible to developing convictions or practices that are not at all in line with Scripture? Without a biblical foundation to anchor you to the truth, it's easy to pick up on anything that people say. Oh, that sounds good to me. That seems in line with the culture. Why wouldn't I believe those things? And you see, when people don't have that foundation of, of doctrine, it allows for them to be swept to and fro with every single wind of doctrine. You know, I've, I've heard people say, hey, I really like that speaker. They're really biblical, but, uh, oh, it's a woman pastor. I like, what? Oh, it's okay. You know, they're biblical. Oh, how, how are they biblical? I mean, they just quote the Bible a lot. Is that what being biblical really is? No, it's not. Right? Being biblical doesn't mean that someone goes out there and just tells you Bible stuff, right? Because the Mormons do that. The Jehovah's Witnesses do that. They'll tell you the Bible out your ears. They'll quote the Bible to you like nothing. They know the Bible better than some of us, to be honest. Well, supposedly. They'll quote the scriptures to you all the time. And is that being biblical? No, it's not, right? You have to have a solid doctrinal foundation that affirms what God says, that cares about what God says. And so when people develop convictions or have attitudes or actions that are not in line with Scripture and begin to live lives contrary to what the Bible teaches, it shows us the second way that the Scriptures are profitable, and that is for reproof. There's for reproof. Reproof can also be translated as rebuke. It's a more negative aspect of teaching as it aims to make someone aware of sin or to discipline them for sin. For some of of you who've been reproved before, you know that it's not fun, right? It's It's never fun to have someone come up to you and rebuke you, right? I don't know anyone who loves being rebuked, right? It's a little easier to handle when people rebuke you in a loving way, but it's a lot less easy to receive rebuke or reproof when someone does it to your face and they're not so nice about it. Saying that, though, when it comes to Scripture's profitability and the the necessity of reproof or rebuke in our lives, it doesn't mean that we as Christians are to function as the theology police or the doctrine police or the lifestyle police. And go out, we go out and we just start judging other people, wielding our Bibles and smacking people upside the heads with it. Okay, we don't use our Bibles as weapons. Yeah, we are supposed to watch out for one another. And we're supposed to call each other out for sin when we see it. But we must make sure that when we give a rebuke, that it's done in love according to scriptures, according to what the word says, not according to our preferences. And the rebuke that we give, it's a rebuke that desires for the sinning one to repent and to return to God. It's not license for us to use the truth as a weapon against others, but it is an opportunity for us to restore our sinning brother or sister. A great example of this is found in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Matthew writes, 
quoting Jesus. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice in verse 15, when it talks about confronting a sinning brother, what does it say? We're to go to them in private. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. You've won them over. Our goal even when we have to rebuke others, even when we have to correct others, our goal is to win them over to the truth, to win them over to what they're supposed to do. We're not just trying to yell at them into obedience. Right? We're trying to win people over to the truth. Because our goal, even in rebuke, is restoration to God. Restoration to God. We call this confrontation restoration. Confrontation hyphen restoration. Not just confrontation on its own, not just restoration on its own, but together confrontation restoration. All of it done in love because we desire for those who sin to return to the Lord. Ephesians 4.15 speaks to this a little bit as we are called to speak the truth to one another in love. And this doesn't mean that you go around yelling at people, dealing harshly with them, saying, I'm only telling you this truth because, I'm, because I love you. So just do what I say. Is that love? No, it's not. And, you know, I confess to you. I confess to you uh, that for some of you, I have been harsh. Uh, I have rebuked you not in love, but in anger or annoyance. And I'm sorry for that, and I beg for your forgiveness. You know, sometimes we do have to speak the truth in love to others. And sometimes that does mean, or no, sorry, sometimes we, we speak the truth in love to others in a tough love sort of way. And sometimes we have to because people don't hear us. But you don't just start there, right? On a scale of 1 to 10, you don't start at 10, and say, okay, now deal with it, right? No. We start at one. We try and win them over. Right? It's so much easier to hear rebuke when someone's trying to win you over than when they just come out and go, bam, right in the face. You're a sinner. Repent. Sometimes you need to do that, but it's not, it's not ultimately helpful. Right? Our goal, remember, is restoration. It's confrontation and restoration together as one because God cares about that because God wants that. Reproof is seen as the negative side of correction because it makes someone aware of sin, perhaps a sin that they're not aware of doing, right? And so that's why we have to be patient. We have to be patient because sometimes when people are in sin, they don't even realize that they're in sin. That's just the nature of sin. It blinds us. And so we have to be patient, asking questions, choosing to, choosing to ask questions and being gentle rather than just throwing accusations out there. Because when we throw accusations out there, we're not necessarily trying to find the truth. So we have to ask questions. We have to be gentle. We have to be patient. That leads us to correction. Correction is the third way that Scripture is profitable, and it's really closely related to rebuke. 
but it's more of the positive aspect of rebuke. In fact, I kind of cheated forward a little bit when I talked about confrontation restoration because the restoration part is correction. It is correction. The sins that we commit, whatever they might be, it stems from our sinful heart. And whether our sin is a result of conscious or unconscious rebellion towards God, error in our hearts always leads to error in our actions. And so if reproof corrects the doctrine error in our hearts, correction addresses the conduct error. We've seen this before because Paul often instructs believers in this way. Right? He always establishes doctrinal foundation and then he shows you, okay, because of this doctrine, this is how you're supposed to act. Right? So confrontation, restoration is essential in the lives of believers. And I know some of you do not, do not like confrontation. Whether you are on the receiving end of it or the giving end of it, it just doesn't feel good sometimes, right? But even if it doesn't feel good, it's not all bad. We are called to both confront and to restore using scripture as our guide, not our feelings, not our preferences. And we, as a church, we need to strive together to lovingly confront and restore one another so that we might honor Christ in our lives, in every single aspect of our lives. And that means, brothers and sisters, we have to talk. We have to talk. We have to communicate, and we have to communicate well. Sometimes that might mean you need to cool down before you start talking to someone. Right? You need to examine your own heart. Make sure that there's no two-by-four in your heart while there's a speck in your, in your brother or sister's heart. Or eye. Right? We might need to cool down, but we need to communicate. We need to communicate. And that means that we can't be passive-aggressive. We can't be passive-aggressive. We can't be petty. And we have to communicate well because sometimes, actually, wait, no, not sometimes, all the time. I don't know what's going on in your head. I don't know what you're thinking, right? Those of you who are married or in relationships, you know this, right? I don't know what you're thinking, so just talk to me. We don't, we don't know what's going on in the other person's head. Or we might think we know what's going on in their heads, but do we really? Right? No, we don't. So talk. We must communicate. Don't be passive-aggressive. Don't be petty. All these things we have to do in order to strive to glorify God in our conduct, not only by ourselves, but within ourselves, within us as a body. Right? In its historical context, when Timothy was told about the profitability of reproof and correction, it's in relationship to false doctrine that's crept into the church, that's threatened the church. But it also rightly applies to our lives and our conducts as well. We are all sinners saved by grace, so we ought to be better than the world when it comes to receiving correction for our faults. Oh, brothers and sisters, please don't clench your fists and grit and hold and clench your teeth when someone's rebuking you. Learn how to receive it well. Learn how to receive it well. There are definitely times where I've been rebuked for things and it hasn't been done in the right way. And inside my own brain, inside my own head, I'm just kind of like, I see what you're saying and you're right, but I hate the way that you've talked to me. I hate the way that you, you addressed me. So I don't want to listen. 
Is that the attitude that we're supposed to have? No, it's not. So when I've been rebuked in those ways, yeah, I've complained and sinned against the brother or sister who've rebuked me. And then God convicts me and doesn't let me be angry. Sometimes I'm just like, you know what, God, just leave me alone. I want to be angry. Can I just be angry right now? I don't know if any of you think that way. That's how I think sometimes. Um, It's just like, yeah, I just want to be angry. But then when you think about it, when you think about the truth, it's just like, no, I'm wrong. Right, I'm wrong. And even if they didn't approach me in the right way, even if, even if they were harsh with me, even if they sinned against me, what is the core truth that I need to recognize and understand? And that's when I repent of my sin and, and turn to what I know is right. And, so, and sometimes you don't want to forgive, right? Sometimes you don't want to forgive, but God doesn't allow for us to have conditions when it comes to our forgiveness, right? The truth is still the truth, and we must respond to that. We must repent, and we must forgive the one who sinned against us, no matter what they've done. And it doesn't excuse what they've done. It doesn't make it any, it doesn't make it less sinful. Like, they've still sinned against you. They still hurt you, but what does God call you to do? He calls you to respond in the truth, even if they don't, even if they won't. That's what we're called to do. And we need to honor Scripture. We need to honor God in that way. The Scriptures will still deal with that sinning one. Or God will still deal with that sinning one for their sin. They're still responsible for that. They're still accountable for that. Right? But as, best, as, as far as it depends on us, we must honor Scripture in our lives. Don't point the finger at someone else and say, well, they didn't do that. They didn't repent yet. It doesn't matter. You do the best that you can to honor God, and you let God deal with them. And, you know, when it comes to confrontation restoration, we have to be careful, too, because a lot of times we're real good at this. We're real good at this. Instead of going and, and showing the sinning one their faults in private, we're good about talking to other people about it first, right? Hey, you hear what so-and-so did? Do you see what I'm seeing? Hey, this is what happened to me. Do you think that's sinful? Should we talk to this person? I'm guilty of that too. I'm guilty of talking about other people's sin problems rather than talking to them. And so brothers and sisters, we got to be better than that. We got to do better than that. Right? There's a difference between confrontation, restoration, and slander. And more often than not, or not even slander, just you know, revealing sin that shouldn't be revealed to others. We have to be careful because there's a very fine line between church discipline and being slanderous. And I feel like more often than not, we probably lean more towards being slanderous than actually disciplining out of love. So we got to be careful. Okay. 
Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. This applies to you too, right? But perhaps not in the way that you think. You can certainly look at this as a, that confrontation restoration is just a Christian alternative uh, to conflict resolution, but it is so much more than that. Yeah, I mean, you've heard us talk very openly, very honestly about how we as Christians, we fail, right? And you might say, well, that means you're a hypocrite. And I will say to you, yes, yes, we are. We are hypocrites, right? But that's kind of how God planned it, didn't he? God, even though he offered forgiveness and salvation through Christ, by grace through faith. He knows that we're not going to be sinless until later. Until glorification happens, we will all struggle with our sin. That'll happen much later. But from a moral standpoint, Christians have been declared righteous and innocent by God because they believed in Christ. They've been forgiven of their cosmic treason because of that, because of Christ's death and resurrection and their belief in it. And turning away from sins, Christians have been declared right, innocent before God, positionally righteous. Unless you acknowledge your sin and believe that Jesus died on the cross for you and then rose again, you have not and will not receive God's free offer of forgiveness of sins. Now, God, he recognized the sin problem in every single one of us, the heart problem that's in every single one of us. And because of that, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again. And that is the basis of our ultimate confrontation restoration act god wants to restore you to right relationship with himself and he offers that to you now that offer stands now there will be a time though when god rescinds that offer when it's time for judgment so i exhort you to take that offer today acknowledge your sin turn away from it believe in jesus christ and be forgiven that is for you if you are here today and you're not a believer. That's how this applies to you. Now, the fourth way that Scripture is profitable for us is in training in righteousness. Right? If teaching provides the doctrinal foundation for Christians, training in righteousness reveals how that doctrinal foundation results in right conduct. You know, we all recognize, to a certain extent, how we ought to act in, as a result of the doctrine that we've received. And the Bible, it reinforces that, showing us how God-honoring conduct in line with the Bible goes beyond rule-following. That's what people say sometimes, right? Oh, yeah, Christians, you guys just follow a bunch of rules. Ooh, so much more than that. God doesn't care about the rules. He cares about your heart, the heart that obeys the rules. What's the heart attitude behind that? And that is why we at this church, we love biblical counseling. As some of you know from our conference with Dr. John Street, there are a lot of different ideas out there when it comes to biblical counseling. And by the way, if you missed that conference, any part of that conference, feel free to go online to our website in our sermon section. All three sessions are there with Dr. Street. Don't miss that. SF Bible, we believe that the scriptures are sufficient to help us deal with every single one of our problems. And it's not that we ignore or deny science, right? We don't. We don't ignore or deny science, but we do believe that the scriptures help us deal with our core issues that lie beneath some of our medical issues. 
We all have heart issues, a sin problem within the heart. And that's what biblical counseling strives to address. It doesn't ignore the medical, but it does look at the heart of each individual. That's, what, that's why biblical counseling is so effective. The scriptures help us identify our heart problems, our sin problems, and it helps us see how God enables for us to address those problems, to have a godly mindset that leads to godly actions. You are not stuck in your sin. You're not trapped by your sin. You are not defined by your sin. The scriptures provide an answer to every single one of your sin issues, every single one of my sin issues. The scriptures are authoritative and powerful to address everything so that we can with the help of the Holy Spirit, do our best to honor God in our day-to-day lives. The scriptures are profitable to teach us to believe and do what is right in God's eyes. They reveal God's truth to us so that we can see and understand what honors God. And unlike what some churches will have you believe, the scriptures are always relevant. I've seen churches out there say, oh, come to our church. We preach relevant messages about the scriptures. Or from the scriptures. As if the scriptures are not relevant at all. Or as if there are only parts of the scriptures that are relevant. No, every single word from every book is relevant to you. You might not see it. right? We have to do some work, some hard work to see how it's relevant. But it is so relevant to our lives. The scriptures are always relevant. Always have been, always will be. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, we must turn to the scriptures and rely upon them in our lives. This leads us to the third attribute we'll observe about the Bible that challenges us to value the place of God's word in our lives, which is the purpose of scripture, the purpose of scripture. So far this morning, we've seen that the scripture is inspired, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, All for what? All for what purpose? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This most readily applies to Timothy, because in context, this is to Timothy. And and Paul's writing it to Timothy. But it also applies to all believers as well. The scriptures are powerful. it, It enables Timothy and all the pastors who followed after Timothy to teach the truth to other people so that they, in turn, can teach the truth to other people. The scriptures make all of us adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, some of you, you might think, adequate? That doesn't sound good enough. Right? It just sounds like, oh, just hitting the standard. Right? Passable. But it's so much more than that. Right? When, you look at, when you look at it, it says, so that man of God may be adequate, comma, equipped for every good work. Right? Adequacy is defined by the equipped for every good work part. And so if you're adequate, equipped for every good work, that means that the scriptures, the scriptures, they prepare you completely. The scriptures prepare you completely that you are enabled because of the scriptures to do every single thing that God wants for you to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be like super good at everything that you do, but with the task that you're called to do, 
you can do it to the glory of God. You can accomplish his purposes. So when pastors teach God's word faithfully, and they're fully equipped to teach you God's word, it allows for each and every one of you to be fully equipped to teach God's word. Some of you say, I'm not a teacher. Well, you are to your family members, aren't you? To your friends? You're equipped for every good work. You can do these things. You too, like your shepherds, will be adequate, equipped for every good work. You can do what God intends for you to do and to accomplish. God's ultimate purpose in giving us his breathed out word, which is profitable for all areas in our lives, is to train us up, to equip us to do his work here on earth. He has not left us helpless, but has given us exactly what we need in his Holy Spirit and his word to accomplish what he desires for us to do in our lives. This morning, we observed three attributes of God's word that challenges us to value the place of God's word in our lives. We saw the inherent authority that the Bible has, since it is from God, and how it readily applies to our lives, all for the purpose of making men or making us the men and women that God wants us to be here on earth. All of this stems from God's word. So you see, brothers and sisters, reading our Bibles is important for us. It's important in our lives. Yeah, it is good for us, right? but it's also important because what we have in our hands is God's very word concerning himself. And when we read his word, we shouldn't think of it as a duty, but it is all an act of worship. The way that we live our lives itself is all an act of worship. And because of this, SF Bible values the word of God highly, knowing that everything we do ought to reflect what God's word says. Now, we might not do this perfectly, and there may be some areas where we do need to strengthen it, but it won't be our wisdom that gets us to that point. It won't be our methodology that gets us to that point. It'll be the Bible. The Bible will get us to that point. We will look to the Bible for our wisdom. We will look to the Bible to develop our principles, to get us where we need to be. So will you join with me, both individually and corporately, to strive to honor God's word more in our lives? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how kind you are to us to preserve your word so that though we might be 2,000 plus years removed from the original writing of the scriptures, we have your exact word in our hands, that we know exactly what you wanted your people back then to know and what you continue to want your people to know. We thank you that you make the Bible understandable, even if it is hard to understand. And we pray, Lord, that you would develop in each and every one of our hearts a love for your word and a desire to do what it says, even if it's difficult, even if it hurts. So we pray, Lord, that you be with each and every one of us. Help us to glorify you, to seek to glorify you, to honor you in everything that we do. And it's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention. Have a great week. And uh, yeah, God bless. We'll see you next week.